When I was a kid, I loved reading the Choose Your Own Adventure books. If you're not familiar with them, they're books where you, the reader, get to decide where the story goes. After reading a few pages that would set up the scene, you eventually come to one that had options on it. Which one you chose took you to a different page in the book, and the storyline changed based on your decision. You would then read a few more pages, and you'd come to another page that had options on it that would take you to another part of the book, and so on, and so on. There were dozens of possible endings to the book, depending on the choices you made along the way. Some were happy, others not so much. All of them were weird. For example, one scenario ended in your electrocution when you drag a TV into the bathroom to play video games while you take a bubble bath. And while the weirdness of the stories was certainly a draw, these books were a natural fit for the American ideal of self-determination. Each book had a statement at the beginning that read, beware and warning, you and you alone are responsible for what happens in this story. But that was viewed more as a rallying cry. Choose your own adventure wasn't just a book, it was a way of life. And that, may be why the doctrine of election, or predestination as it's sometimes called, causes us such angst. It seems to be the anti-choose-your-own-adventure, right? It seems to be a direct affront to that freedom of choice we so deeply crave. And at the mere mention of these words, we bristle at the idea of our autonomy being taken away. We get frustrated with having questions that don't get answered. We worry about what it means for our loved ones. We have existential crises about whether it means we have any choices in life. It can be a very unsettling doctrine to us. And if you're struggling with this, you're not alone. The great Jonathan Edwards even confessed, it used to appear like a horrible doctrine to me. Based on his own experiences of teaching this doctrine, Arthur Pink wrote, God's sovereign election is the truth most loathed and reviled by the majority of those claiming to be believers. Let it be plainly announced that salvation originated not in the will of man, but in the will of God, that were it not so, none would or could be saved, and that even the elect themselves must be made willing. And loud will be the cries of indignation raised against such teaching. Can I tell you how thrilled I am to be up here this morning? And it's because the reality is that the doctrine of election forces us to deal with the sovereignty of God. It demands that we hand control over our final destiny to him, trusting him completely with it. And it seems to demand this by asking nothing of us, telling us that except for our sin, we have nothing to contribute to our salvation. God mysteriously and perfectly does it himself. And so our insistence that we must have a say in things and elections insistence that we do not is simply too much for us. And that's a shame because while the doctrine of election does compel us to put aside our pride and reminds us of our limitations, it also clearly displays the character of the God we're asked to put our trust in. Theologian Lorraine Bettner wrote, Predestination holds that events come to pass because in an infinitely wise, powerful, and holy God has so appointed them. That from eternity, God had one unified plan or purpose 
which he is bringing to perfection. R.C. Sproul, in his book, he wrote, that my destiny would be in the hands of an indifferent or hostile force is terrifying. That it is in the hands of a righteous and loving God is quite another matter. And my hope this morning is that we'll see the doctrine of election as the Bible intends for us to. Not as an arbitrary degree, decree of a God who saves some and not others by randomly drawing their names out of a hat. But it, the incredible expression of God's love for us, the good pleasure of his will, and the glorious grace that he lavished on us in Christ. That was from Ephesians 1. And that will encourage us to respond to its author with reverence, humility, and gratitude, rather than angst and resentment. So here's how we're going to approach this doctrine this morning. We're going to talk about what the doctrine of election is, where and how it's taught in the Bible, some differences of opinion about it among Christians, and then we'll end with some objections to it. So what is the doctrine of election? For all the heartburn that it causes, it can be summarized by a rather simple statement. God chooses whom he will save. Now, if you're hearing that for the first time, it can be a shocking statement. <laughs> and all sorts of potential implications can start running around in your mind. So in order to think about this more biblically, we're going to refine that definition a little bit. This is from Benjamin Merkel, a professor at Southeastern Baptist Seminary. Election is the divine choice of God to grant eternal life to undeserving sinners based solely on his love and not on the goodness of those receiving his grace. It is not arbitrary, but part of his grand plan of salvation. And that's how I want us to think of election this morning, a gift from God to undeserving sinners based solely on his love and not on the goodness of those receiving it. It's part of his grand plan of salvation. This is not a standalone doctrine. It's not a replacement for the gospel. It's not a doctrine that implies God invented the lottery. It is intentional and it's purposeful. Now last month, Erica took us through the doctrine of salvation, particularly the work of Christ to accomplish that salvation um, through his death and resurrection. And that's what most Christians think of when they hear that term salvation, and rightly so. We are all sinners who deserve eternal punishment from God. But because Jesus, who was without sin, died on the cross, taking on the Father's wrath in our place, and then rose from the dead, those who repent and believe in him can be made right with God and have eternal life with him. We're saved because of what Christ has done for us. However, the Bible has a lot more to say about our salvation. For one, it speaks of it as having a past present, and future reality for believers. For example, Ephesians 2.8 talks about salvation past tense. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Present tense. Romans 5.9, How much more then, since we have now been declared righteous by his blood, will we be saved through him from wrath. Future tense. Salvation is an ongoing process, not a one-time event that happened at the cross. It was accomplished for us at the cross. But it encompasses a much bigger plan from God that extends from eternity past to eternity future and is at work in our lives today. 
The passage that really captures this idea is Romans 8, 29 through 30, which also introduces us to the proper context of election. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. There are several things that happen to believers in God's salvation plan. We are predestined, called, justified, and glorified, as well as regenerated, adopted, sanctified, and other things as we learn in other parts of scripture. And we're gonna walk through each of those steps in the women's institutes for the rest of the school year. This morning, we're dealing with the first one, election or predestination. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, there are debates about the meaning of foreknew, but I think John Stott had good insight in his commentary in Romans, where he calls it a sovereign distinguishing love. And so those God foreloved set his affection on, chose for his own, he decided what would become of them, conformed to the image of Christ. That is the doctrine of election. Now, election is not a minor doctrine. It is a key theme in the entire biblical storyline. And there are a lot of verses about it from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end. Here are just a few of them. Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 7, talking about Israel. The Lord your God has chosen you to be his own possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord has his heart set on you and chose you. Then Isaiah 49, verses 8 and 9, after Israel has messed up spectacularly, God still says to them, but you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, I brought you from the ends of the earth and called you from its farthest corners. I said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you. I haven't rejected you. Jesus teaches it. Speaking of the end times, he says in Matthew 24, verse 31, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Or Mark chapter 13, verse 20. If the Lord had not cut those days short, no one would be saved. But he cut the days short for the sake of the elect whom he chose. And even speaking of present times, um, Jesus teaches in Luke chapter 10, verse 22. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. John 15, verse 16 Jesus tells his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And there's more. Acts 13, verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord, and all who had been appointed to eternal life believed. Paul teaches it, telling us that election is from eternity past. Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. For he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. To be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself. According to the good pleasure of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us and the beloved one. Our 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 13. 
But we ought to thank God always for you, brothers and sisters loved by the Lord, because from the beginning, God has chosen you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in truth. Christian, your salvation did not start the day you believed. It started in eternity past when God foreloved you before anyone else did. James teaches this. It keeps going. James 2, verse 5. Didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he promised to those who love him? Peter teaches it. 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 2. To those chosen, living as exiles dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Christ. And even to the end in Revelation, Revelation chapter 17, verse 14, the Lamb will conquer them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings. Those with him are called, chosen, and faithful. And that is only about one quarter of the verses about election in the Bible. It is a huge theme. As Charles Spurgeon wrote, whatever may be said about the doctrine of election it is written in the word of God as with an iron pen, and there is no getting rid of it. And most Christian churches have something about election in their statement of faith. This is UBC's. We believe that election is the eternal purpose of God, according to which he graciously regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. That being perfectly consistent with the free agency of persons, it comprehends all the means in connection with the end. The Bible clearly teaches this doctrine. But to keep us in the right frame of mind, there is more to this statement. Here's the rest of our statement on election. That it is a most glorious display of God's sovereign goodness, being infinitely free, wise, holy, and unchangeable. That it utterly excludes boasting and promotes humility, Love, prayer, praise, trust in God, and active imitation of his free mercy. That it encourages the use of means in the highest degree. That it may be ascertained by its effects in all who truly believe the gospel. That it is the foundation of Christian assurance. And that to ascertain it with regard to ourselves demands and deserves the utmost diligence. The Bible does not present the doctrine of election as some kind of philosophical puzzle for us to solve or an anvil to beat each other over the head with. It's okay to think about it, try to work it together with what else the Bible teaches. But the Bible always, always presents election as a display of God's sovereign goodness, wisdom, holiness, and mercy. For example, we read Romans 8, 29 through 30 earlier but there's a famous verse right before it, Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Then we've got that great transition word for. For those he foreknew, he also predestined, called, justified, and glorified. The reason we know all things work together for the good of believers is because God chose believers with the end goal of glorifying them. The outcome is secure. From eternity past, when God chose you, to eternity future, when God will glorify you forever, and all the times in between, God has good in mind for you. 
Election is a good thing from a good God for a good purpose. Or look at the verses from Ephesians and 2 Thessalonians again. Ephesians 1, 5 through 6. He predestined us according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. Or 2 Thessalonians. We ought to thank God always for you. Why? Because from the beginning God has chosen you for salvation. The doctrine of election is meant to bring us to our knees and worship and praise and thanksgiving of the sovereign, merciful, and gracious God. The reason believers are not spending an eternity in hell is because God chose us for glory instead, when we deserve the complete opposite. And he did that at great cost to his son. To top it all off, not only did he choose us to save us from wrath, he chose to adopt us into his family. And now we have every spiritual blessing in heavens in Christ. Theologian B.B. Warfield wrote, that God has set upon me from all eternity to save me, wretched sinner that I am. How can I express the holy joy that fills my heart at every remembrance of it? This is the foundation of all my comfort, the assurance of all my hope. Is that your reaction when you hear the words election or predestination? Because it's what the Bible wants it to be. It's why Paul writes in Colossians 3, Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so also you are to forgive. If the doctrine of election doesn't motivate us to live lives characterized by compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, then we're not understanding the doctrine of election correctly. And we're definitely not applying it properly. This is not a doctrine meant to be some type of intellectual exercise or a debate topic. It is a doctrine to be lived out. Election is Courtney Osborne constantly giving out hugs on Sunday mornings. Right? It's Evelyn and Bronson Stilwell opening up their house for international students to live in. It's in life groups with varying ages and races and backgrounds praying for each other. Election is imitating God's choice to love sinners who don't deserve it. Is that how you see it? It's how God sees it. It's how the Bible presents it to us. And that's why the Bible presents the doctrine of election as something that should encourage us to share the gospel. The good news that God chooses to love sinners. God not only chose who he would save, he chose the means to accomplish that salvation. And it's through the gospel. Paul, who wrote all these verses about election, he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.10, I endure everything for the elect. Why did Paul preach the gospel in city after city where he was beaten, shipwrecked, thrown in jail, and endured all sorts of hardships for the elect? Paul didn't think, oh, God chooses who he will save. I don't have to do anything. God will do it himself. Paul knew that if God had chosen believers to be saved in the cities that he went to, he would save them through means, through the gospel, 
which Paul preached to them. God works through chosen people to bring chosen people to himself. And we can do so with confidence, knowing that God has chosen people to be saved, and they will believe the gospel. Wayne Gruden had a helpful analogy. He said, it's as if someone invited us to come fishing and said, I guarantee you will catch fish. Election doesn't erase our need of the gospel. The Bible is clear that only those who turn away from sin and turn to Christ will be saved. The gospel is how God brings his elect to himself and how we know that we're elect. Here's 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full assurance. Or James chapter 1, verse 18. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Are you wondering if you're among the elect? Ask yourself if you're trusting in the good news of Jesus Christ for your salvation. Want to know if your loved ones are elect, your neighbors, your coworkers? Tell them the gospel and find out. God doesn't tell us who he has chosen. He doesn't tell us when he'll call them to himself. But he does tell us they're out there waiting to hear the gospel. And he commands us to go tell them the harvest is plentiful because God had chosen people to bring to himself. And the gospel is how he does that. And so we can't lose sight of Christ, the ultimate chosen one, as Luke 9.35 tells us. When we think about election, we fight about the why and the how, and we completely forget about the who. Jesus, who's supposed to have first place in everything, Colossians 1.18. Ephesians 1 tells us that we were chosen in Christ. Romans 8.29, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Every one of God's promises, including election, is capped because of Jesus. We are chosen to belong to him. We are elected to exalt him as the risen king and savior. So when you think about election, is Jesus front and center of it? Because that's what the Bible wants you to think. And that's how the Bible presents the doctrine of election to us. A good thing rooted in Christ, meant to comfort and assure us, not to cause us angst. Its goal is to bring praise to the God who chose us for his own from eternity past, not to start controversy and arguments with each other. Speaking of which, there is some controversy with this topic. Among Christians and non-Christians alike... And while Christians agree that the doctrine of election is taught in the Bible, there are disagreements about how it works. At the core of the disagreement is how God's sovereignty and human free will factor into things. And there are two main views on this, Arminian and Calvinist. Both views agree that one must repent and believe in the gospel to be saved. Both views take their cue from scripture. They just interpret it differently. Regarding election, the debate basically comes down to this. Do faith and repentance cause election? Or are they a result of election? In the Arminian view, they cause 
election. So election is considered conditional on whether a person puts their faith in Christ. So an Arminian definition of election um, would be what Jack Cottrell says. The idea that God predestines to salvation those who meet the gracious conditions which he has set forth. So those who repent and believe, those are the one God considers chosen. This view is often based on interpreting that word foreknew, back in Romans 8.29, as God foreseeing people's actions. So that is, God knows in advance who will respond positively to the gospel. And they are the ones he regards chosen. So in a sense, God chooses those he knows will choose him. And so as a result, election is not so much a part of God's plan of salvation of humans as it is a recognition of God's omniscience in human affairs. This view tends to emphasize the human free will in election. And in this view, after the fall and sin entered into the world, God provided what they call a prevenient grace. Um, This is a grace that precedes one having faith. Um, in Christ. And so this grace allows all people to respond to the gospel in faith and repentance. But it is a resistible grace. So one is free to accept or reject it. God knows what humans will choose, but ultimately he doesn't intervene and he leaves, leaves the decision up to the individual. So the ball is in their court, so to speak, in the Arminian view of election. Scriptures used to support conditional election are ones like Romans chapter 5, verse 2. We have also obtained access through him by faith into this grace in which we stand. Um, Or 1 Timothy 4, um, verse 10. We have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. So that's the Arminian view of election. In the Calvinist view... Faith and repentance are a result of election. So election is considered unconditional. And a Calvinist definition of election would be the one by Wayne Gruden, where he writes, election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. So this view tends to emphasize God's sovereignty in election. And in this view, because of the fall and sin entering in the world, humans are totally depraved and cannot choose God in and of themselves. So they turn to Romans 3, verses 10 through 11. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. So in the Calvinist view, there is no such thing as prevenient grace. All humans are stuck in their sin. But for those God foreknew or foreloved, he extended a saving grace to them, choosing to draw them to himself. And this grace is irresistible. And so it's God's decisions and actions, not ours, that are responsible for our salvation. Scriptures used to support this view are ones like 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Our Romans 9, verses 11 through 12, speaking about Jacob and Esau. For though her sons had not been born yet or done anything good or bad, 
so that God's purpose according to election might stand, not from works, but from the one who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. So in the Calvinist view, God's election choices are his to hand out for his own purposes. Personally, I hold a Calvinist view of election. Part of that is scripture, and part of it is my own experience of being saved. I grew up in the church. I heard the gospel all the time. I knew about Jesus and what he had done, and it didn't matter to me. Until one day, God told me that it did matter. I wasn't at church. I wasn't reading scripture. I wasn't looking for him. I was literally minding my own business when I distinctly and clearly heard God's call to follow him and how he obeyed. And so I can empathize um, with Spurgeon when he said, I am quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born, or else he would never have chosen me afterwards. <laughs> and he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. That's my own experience. But there are Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, truly saved Christians who hold to an Arminian view of election. Now, when we're thinking about ourselves and that God chose us for salvation, the doctrine of election can make us incredibly thankful. But when we're thinking about people who are not saved, who are not believers, then it can become a very difficult doctrine, especially if we hold to unconditional election. And there are several common objections to it. We have lots of questions that don't necessarily get answered the way that we want. Um, for example, one common objection is, how am I supposed to think about my unbelieving friends or family members, that God simply didn't choose them? An unconditional election can seem especially troublesome to those who have, loved, who have unbelieving loved ones, because it seems to imply they might be out of luck. We much prefer thinking that people should at least have the ability to choose God. And this is because we tend to have a darker view of God and a brighter view of ourselves. We think that if we had the freedom to choose God, we would choose him and have a much better chance at salvation than God just choosing us. The Bible, however, has a much more skeptical view of humanity. It says, apart from Christ, we are dead in our sins, Ephesians 2. And dead people simply cannot choose life. If the Bible described our spiritual state as sick, then we could ponder choosing God, like taking or not taking the medicine of the gospel to make us better. But the Bible says that we are dead, and that changes things considerably. Because if we view it from that perspective, then that kind of free will salvation that we hope for our loved ones is actually hopeless. Because if we're dead, we're not capable of choosing God. That's why we need to be saved, not just from the consequences of our sin, but from our inability to not sin and our constant tendency to reject God. Unconditional election, therefore, becomes really good news. Salvation is not in our hands. It's in God's. 
So if your close family member or loved one is not a Christian, praise God that eternity is in his hands and not in theirs or yours. If salvation was in their hands, we should utterly despair because the situation is hopeless. If the salvation was in our hands, we should constantly worry because we're constantly messing up. One mistake, and our friend could lose their salvation forever. But if their salvation is in God's hands, who is perfectly wise and loving and infinitely more capable than we are, we should have peace. It is a much better thing to have our destiny rest in God's hands than our own. But I also encourage you to keep sharing the gospel with those loved ones. We know those who truly repent and believe in Christ are among the elect, but that doesn't automatically mean that those who haven't done that yet are completely lost. It took years of people sharing the gospel with me before God called me. God chooses us before creation, but he calls us when the timing is right. And because he doesn't choose us based on what kind of person we are, no one is hopeless. Another objection is that at first glance, it doesn't seem fair that God would choose one person and not another based solely on his will and not on anything in us. And we aren't the first ones to think this. Paul addresses it in Romans chapter 9. And his answer to whether God is unfair? Absolutely not. Verse 14. For one thing, if we demand fairness, we demand what we deserve. No more, no less. And the Bible is clear that, we des- that because we are sinners, we all deserve the wrath of God, not his love. We all deserve death, not life. So if we're talking about fairness, it's fair that no one gets saved. What's unfair is God choosing to save anyone. What's unfair is Jesus dying on the cross in our place. God has given us grace and mercy in our salvation, not fairness, and thank God for that. Secondly, We simply have no moral or scriptural basis to argue with God about what's fair. He is sovereign creator and we are not. Paul writes in Romans 9, he shows mercy on whom he will show mercy. And the one who is formed has no right to ask his creator, why did you make me like this? That might not be the answer we were looking for, but it's the one we're given. Scripture tells us that God chooses one and not another. Why? Simply the way God wants it. Many Christians think that there must be something else that God wants, desires more than saving everyone. Armenians say that desire is preserving um, humans' free will. Calvinists say that desire is God's own glory. It shows his power and wrath and justice and mercy um, in a way that otherwise couldn't have been shown. But as Wayne Gruden likes to say, there's mystery here. And we're not going to get a great answer that we want. But doesn't the Bible say God wants to save everyone? That's another common objection. And they use two verses for this. 2 Peter 3.9, which says, The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. And 1 Timothy 2, verses 3-4. through 
This is good and it pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. So how do we reconcile these verses with the doctrine of election? Well, the Bible speaks of God's will in at least three different ways. There's God's sovereign will, which is the will which he brings everything to pass with absolute certainty. So God created the world by sovereign will. Nothing can resist this will. Second, there's God's preceptive will, which refers to his commands. It is God's will that we do what he says. We are capable of resisting this will. It's called sin. And God punishes those who go against his preceptive will. But then there's God's disposition will, which refers to what is pleasing to God. So 2 Peter 3.9 refers to God's sovereign will, then nobody will perish. Some say that's exactly what it means because Peter is referring to the elect. And it's meant as a comfort to believers that their salvation is sure. Others say, no, 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 he's talking about all people, just like in 1 Timothy. And so it can't be referring to God's sovereign will. Otherwise, we'd all be universalists and we wouldn't be sitting here on a Saturday morning trying to figure out the doctrine of election, or any doctrine for that matter. If it refers to God's preceptive will, then perishing goes against God's command. And if people went and perished anyway, God would have to punish them for it which involves more perishing, so that can't be right. (laughs) That leaves us with God's disposition will. God takes no delight in the perishing of anyone. And that fits with other scripture, like Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Or Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, where Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Pastor and author Mark Webb summarized these objections this way. He says, you're visualizing that God is standing at the door of heaven and men are thronging to get in the door. And God is saying to various ones, yes, you may come, but not you. You and not you. The situation is hardly this. Rather, God stands at the door of heaven with his arms outstretched, inviting all to come. Yet all men, without exception, are running in the opposite direction towards hell as hard as they can go. The election keeps no one out of heaven who otherwise would have been there but it keeps a whole multitude of sinners out of hell who otherwise would have been there. At the beginning, I told you of my fondness for choose-your-own-adventure books, partly because the stories were weird. But another weird thing about them is that the quality of the decisions you made didn't always correlate with the quality of its ending. Thinking that you made the smart move often ended up in an untimely and devastating death anyway. (laughs) The electrocution by bulb bath was a result of choosing not to illegally break into an amusement park and just wait for the next day when it was open. And that's the rub with our choices, isn't it? 
We make what we think are good ones, and yet they don't end how we envision them. Choosing our own adventure isn't all it's cracked up to be, in books or in real life. But the doctrine of election shows itself to be a steady assurance, holding our destiny firm in the capable hands of a gracious and powerful God who set his heart upon us and chose us for his own, often in spite of us making terrible choices. And I'd like to leave you with this final quote from B.B. Warfield. It says, We owe our salvation wholly to God's kindness, to his undeserved love, to his, quote, grace. It is all from him, and it's beginning and middle and end. Election, we thus see, is but the first moving of God's grace looking to our salvation, the setting of his love upon us, that in its own good time and way it may work its will on and in us. Election is nothing, in other words, but God's purpose to save us. And God never repents of his purposes, but executes them. Let's pray. Oh, our gracious Father, it is indeed right that we thank you always for choosing us for salvation, for blessing us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens of Christ. You have chosen us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. You've predestined us to be adopted according to your good pleasure to the praise of your glorious grace that you lavished on us in Christ. Lord, I pray that you will help us see this doctrine the way that you have designed it to be as a good thing, a thing that should cause us to be humble, to come to you with thanksgiving and praise, to encourage us to share this good news with others, that you love sinners undeservedly, that you've picked us out of that miry pit and chose us for glory. Why? Because it was your good pleasure to do so. So Lord, I pray that Jesus will be front and center of all that we think about this doctrine, that we will cling closely to the cross when we think about this. Lord, we'll see this as a doctrine that we should be living out in the compassion and kindness and humility that you've shown us that that would be shown to others. Lord, may you just continue to humble us and teach us your word through this, that we may continually be in awe and wonder of your mighty and wondrous works. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.